All right, so uh, to kick things off, let's start with our young ones uh, to let y'all know where we're going, what to expect from this passage in the Bible we're going to read, and then what the sermon is going to be about, okay? So kids, if I could have your attention, <clears throat> I want to tell y'all about this, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> about this thing I've seen on TV. I've seen this, uh, there's this prank, there's this uh, joke, well, it's more like a prank, that these parents play on their kids right after Halloween. So, right after Halloween, uh, the morning after, this mom will go to her kid and say, I got so hungry last night, I ate all your candy. Uh, and so, <clears throat> all these parents do this, and they all film, like they kind of secretly, you know, film their kids' reaction. They get all these kids' reactions to uh, telling them that they've eaten their candy. Some kids are really young, and some are older. Uh, but what do you guys think? get these kids the next morning and find out their parents have eaten all their candy. How do you think the kids react? What's that, Richard? Sad? Mad? Peyton? Keep thinking. Keep think. How about this? Sad. What would you, like, kids, what would you say if that happened to you? If you woke up and the next morning your mom, your dad came in and was like, I'm so sorry, I ate all your candy. What would you say? And would you say it like that, Elizabeth, with a smile on your face? Like, oh, so if y'all could see Elizabeth's face. Oh, I'm so mad. Peyton, uh, would you, what would you say? What? Depressed. Go into depression. Uh, okay. Here's what some of these kids said. Okay, so some of, these, some of these kids just immediately start, like, crying and screaming. Like, Im like immediately. And some like are in disbelief, like really can't believe their friend. And they start out like, wait, really? Like, and you can see they're like, they're taking it in and it's processing, their faces are getting redder. And then they just start crying, screaming. Some kids just start yelling like, no, like they're in denial, like, no, no, no. You know, they're really like yelling. Some go after their parents physically. No, 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 no. And just some just uh, really break down. And then others, a couple, I saw a couple look at their mom and say, I'm just so disappointed in you, mommy. Uh, one, one, one kid said that, and the mommy goes back. I was like, I know, I'm so sorry. Do you forgive me? And the kid said, I, I do, I, I forgive you. I'm just so disappointed in you. And then there's one little girl, one little girl who looks at her mom. Her mom says, I, I, I got so hungry, I ate all your candy. One little girl says, Oh, Mom, that's okay. We, we can share my candy. You can have as much as you want. One little boy, his mom comes up. I'm so sorry. She's like, I'm so, so sorry I ate your candy. And, he, and she, she's sad. <laughs> I think she feels bad. She's playing this prank. And the little boy goes, oh, Mommy, Mommy, don't be sad. Don't be sad. I, I, I just want you to be happy. Okay, here's what we're going to talk about this morning, kids. We're going to talk about the fall. Who knows what the fall is? Kids, anybody know what we mean when we say the fall? A season? Yes, it's good. See, this is super important. Context. Yeah, we got to put this in context of the Bible. When we talk about the Bible and the fall, what do we mean? Adam and Eve. And what did Adam and Eve do? Their fall is about Adam and Eve. And say, oh, Yes, and Satan is there. And Satan tricks them into doing something bad, sinning. 
not following God. That's what the fall is all about. That's what we're going to read about. That's what we're going to talk about today. The big question is, how does God react when he shows up and he sees that his kids, Adam and Eve, have been really, really bad? You know, we, we think about that. We think about, well, we need to think about, like, how did God react? Like, in the garden, right after the fall, he shows up. Do you all know? How did God react? No, no bad answers. Let's just try this thing. How do y'all think God reacted? Disappointed? Okay. He's, is he good when he shows up? Ooh, that's really, 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 really good, John William. What else? Mad. Okay. He shows up in all of that. He is mad and he shows up in love and goodness. Who is he loving and good towards? Adam and Eve. Who is he really mad at? Ooh. Who is he really, really mad at? Satan. This is what we're going to talk about today, is that right after fall, Adam and Eve screw up, and God comes and says, I am going to save you, because I love you so much, I'm going to save you from this enemy. And the way I'm going to do this is I'm going to send you a champion who's going to beat this devil for you. And who is that champion that God is talking about? Right there at the beginning, right after the fall, he tells him, I'm sending you a champion. Who do you think he's talking about? Jesus. Right there, right at the beginning, right after the fall, God says, I'm sending you this Savior. We know it's Jesus, and he's going to come and save you. So kids, here's what I want you to know. You are, there's like, so what for you today? You are going to mess up. You're going to, you're going to sin. You're going to make mistakes. You have got to know always, every day, forever, God loves you and he forgives you and he will always forgive you because of Jesus. That's how awesome our God's love and grace is. That's what we're going to talk about. He always has been that way since the beginning. This morning, we are starting our new summer series in Job. Yes, this is a series on Job. The sermon text this morning is from Genesis, uh, and that's because if you want to get Job, you have got to get Genesis. Specifically, you've got to get Genesis 3. And if we don't get Genesis 3, <clears throat> we're not going to get the book of Job, and the summer is just going to be a waste. Uh, so, uh, I have a very uh, great fondness for Genesis, uh, but I've actually, I don't think I've ever preached on Genesis 3 taught. Yes, I don't think I've ever preached on it. I could be wrong. But um, big heart for uh, Genesis 3, uh, the beginning of Genesis. I heard, uh, I think first from my dear friend, <clears throat> Professor Rick Lentz said, if you can get Genesis 1 to 3, you can get the whole Bible because it's all there. And I hear that all the time, so it's a, it's a thing. Um, <clears throat> the main theme of Job, think about Job while we're doing this. Main theme of Job is right here in Genesis 3. And if we started in Job 1, I'd just be talking about Genesis 3 anyways. So let's, let's just start here, Genesis 3, okay? So please stand for the reading of God's word. Genesis 3, verses 1 to 15. <clears throat> now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. 
neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the servant said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. It says in the cool of the day, I'm going to pause right there. Love, love, love our translators. It's a bad translation. Uh, What that should say is uh, more literally in the spirit of the day, as in like judgment. Picking back up, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the spirit of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So just jumping right in here, yes, these are real people. Adam and Eve, the very first two people ever. And yes, <clears throat> there really are these two trees uh, in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of life. And yes, there really is a talking snake here. Uh, but this isn't just any snake. Uh, this is the devil. This is Satan. Uh, there, this is this fallen angel who uses this snake uh, as his agent, his vehicle, if you will. For whatever reason, for whatever reason, God does not allow him, uh, the devil, to make a more spectacular appearance in the garden. Uh, For whatever reason, this is the particular form that the devil selects uh, to approach the man and the woman. And it does raise the question. We're diving in deep here right at the beginning. Like, why does, why does the devil choose a snake? Um, I, goodness, I, uh, could you think of a, if you think about it, could you think of a better vehicle? As in, Satan's approach to Adam and Eve, right here, this is his first appearance on the scene. Uh, uh, Satan's approach to Adam and Eve, it's subtle, and it's camouflaged, uh, and it's sinuous, Uh, One of my professors said that he sees in the locomotion of the serpent something which provides an appropriate physical representation of his own psychological tempting approach. So there's something like, it's just this perfect, perfect picture. Uh, And really what Satan is doing here is flattering himself by taking this form because we know animals actually really don't run away from snakes. 
because animals never see the snake coming because you don't see legs running. Uh, Its movement is nearly invisible and it it doesn't chase you down like, it doesn't chase down its prey like a lion does. It waits for its victim and it it just waits till you're close enough and then it strikes. Okay, so uh, there it is. His, his choice of uh, this serpent figure and God picks up on it. Uh, God's curse of the serpent, which you, you start to see right there. He's asking Adam, he's asking Eve what's going on. <clears throat> he knows. Then he turns to the serpent and immediately there's a curse. Starting in verse 14, and God picks up on this imagery. As in, so that's the imagery you've chosen for yourself. It's fine. It's actually quite fitting. Uh, because it's not just the sinuous movement, uh, but God picks up on its lowly position, <clears throat> crawling in the dust, virtually eating the dust. And so God uses that imagery to now figuratively describe the fate and the doom of the devil. He says, cursed are you above all livestock. <clears throat> that does, does that mean that all livestock, all livestock, all animals, that they're cursed, they're going to hell. We're not like, no, that's not that's what he's saying. He said, God is using the devil's preferred vehicle here to mock him. As in comparatively speaking, in earthly existence, the snake is the lowliest of all creatures. And so God uses the literal features of the snake to depict the fate of this superhuman fallen angel that he will experience eternal death at the deepest level uh, such that any created being, including angels themselves, can experience death. Okay, that is Satan's doom figuratively stated. And then in the next all-important verse where we're going to concentrate this morning, verse 15, God declares how this is all going to go down. He declares holy war against the devil. And that in the end, Satan will fail and God will judge him. Why are we starting here? Uh, 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 With Genesis 3, uh, getting into Job. Before C.S., I want to run to C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, uh, 20th century author, philosopher, Christian apologist, uh, professor, super smart guy. Uh, Before he wrote his uh, super famous Chronicles of Narnia fiction. He wrote, wrote so many books, but his fiction stuff is, you know, the beloved Chronicles of Narnia. Before he wrote that, he wrote a uh, sci-fi space trilogy, which is excellent, and you should go read it. And the main hero, I'm not spoiling anything here, the main hero of the trilogy is a guy named Ransom. And in the first book called, it's called uh, Out of the Silent Planet, uh, Ransom is kidnapped, and he's taken to Mars. Uh, and he's kidnapped by two colleagues. He's not kidnapped by, you know, people from Mars. He's kidnapped by two uh, people from Earth, uh, two colleagues of his, who, and they have nefarious plans for Mars, and they need Ransom. <clears throat> okay, and through a series of wild events, Ransom meets all of these peaceful, amazing uh, aliens, these, these other uh, uh, people on Mars, and he gets to see, and he gets to learn about Earth, from Mars's perspective. And what he learns from those on Mars is that the earth has been tormented by what Lewis calls a bent one. 
And it says this bent one, what's explained to him is this bent one is a fallen angel. And under his influence, all of earth has become bent. Evil. Starting our Job series here in Genesis 3 is like us traveling to Mars. Which it may feel like that in some ways to you. Uh, Traveling to Mars, as in we actually got to get outside of Job to get this necessary perspective so we can make sense of what is going on in the book of Job. In the book, the book of Job, it is not about suffering. Not first and foremost. The book of Job is about conflict. It is about a conflict. And this is where we see the conflict begin here in Genesis 3. And just like Ransom sees, we see, when we come here, we see that the world is not what it ought to be. It is bent And behind the bent is the bent one. The world is full of evil, and behind that evil is an evil one, this fallen angel. So we just start off by saying, yes, it's true. In 2021, Christians still believe in a real, personal, intelligent, powerful, evil being out there called the devil. I do. Uh, From the beginning to the end of the Bible, the Bible says the devil is real. Uh, Jesus says he's real. It's not, that, it's not that crazy. It's actually pretty rational. If you think there are good spiritual realities out there, how easy is it to assume and believe that there are bad spiritual realities out there? So don't make that Kaiser Soze mistake thing. Uh, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he did not exist. We cannot fall into that deception. He's an extremely powerful angel who has been trying to destroy the people of God ever since the very first people who were the first people of God, uh, Adam and Eve. And, and you cannot, this is kind of the big point, you cannot have a mature, coherent, realistic, true, wise uh, view of the world in this life until you understand this conflict and this enemy. You've got to. So here in verse 15, back to Genesis chapter 3. But by the way, Genesis 3.15 is a great reference to know. Genesis 3.15 is a big one, as you're going to see. Here in verse 15, God reveals in a short, cryptic verse the course of this holy conflict, how this is going to go down. By the way, by the way, this is also cryptic to the devil who is hearing it. Okay. But as short and cryptic as it is in this first declaration, God spells out the stages of this conflict, how this is going to go down. God is going to conduct this conflict first, first by reversing the victory that Satan seems to have won. Because it seems like the devil won. When God created Adam and Eve, he created them in covenant relationship with himself. And Satan has been successful in reversing that allegiance to himself that Adam and Eve have effectively thrown off their their allegiance, uh, their love for God, uh, and they've made a pact with the devil, literally. And now God says he's going to reverse that reversal, uh, which will bring his people back to himself. So, uh, Satan had started this reversal with the woman, so God starts his reversal with the woman. I will put enmity between you and the woman— You made a covenant 
this covenant seemingly of peace with her and she with you, I'm going to reverse that. You're going to lose this convert. And instead of peace with you, there's going to be hostility. I'm going to put enmity between you. It's just God's negative way of saying that he's going to restore the woman to covenant fellowship, loving fellowship with him. Because there are two masters, there are these two lords, and to be friend with one is to be the enemy of the other. And the, this is, I think this is so cool, the commencement of this war, it begins with the woman. Mother Eve is going to stand there at the center of the army of the Lord, and Eve will hold the banner of the Lord's army in fighting this war against Satan. Declaration of war doesn't stop there. God goes on to talk about the seed, quote, the, the offspring. Uh, and what's implied there is that Adam and Eve are going to continue to live on, and they're going to have babies, and their babies are going to grow up, and they're going to have babies. And they're going to have more babies and babies and babies everywhere, and everyone's going to grow up, and that the world is going to be populated with a people. Uh, and this, the descendants of Adam and Eve, and Satan will have his offspring, quote-unquote, Satan will have his offspring, but not in, the, not in the literal sense of he's going to father physically uh, children. No, uh, it's that those who reject this, this promise of salvation are by de facto siding with the devil. As in, um, they're going to be, the, the language here is that they're going to be like their father, the devil, in the sense of just like a child is like their father uh, as being against God. And Eve will have her offspring in the world, those who put their faith in this promise. So the battle that has commenced, it goes on today. It's going to keep going. You're a part of it. And then this declaration of war ends here with the climax, the climax of holy war right here, when out of the corporate seed of the woman— there emerges an individual offspring of the woman. And out of the corporate army of the offspring of the devil, Satan himself will step forward as his own champion of his own army. What you see here right at the end of Genesis 3.15 is this duel of champions. This is the ultimate David and Goliath. And the fate of all is going to be decided by their champions. And when the climactic battle takes place, it says he, that individual offspring of the woman, is going to deliver the fatal blow to you, Satan. It says, yes, yes, you're going to deliver a blow to him, but it will be to his heel. His blow is going to be to your head. Now, I, I really should have gone ahead and changed this in the text uh, that we printed for you. I'm just going to tell you uh, one more translation update here. The verb here translated bruise, it's, it's, a, it's a good translation because it is what the word means. It means bruise. Uh, but the NIV translation nails it here because the NIV correctly picks up on the nuance of this verb, which can also mean to strike. And this, ver this verb can also mean to crush. Context. Fall season, fall, Bible, context. Okay, uh, so the NIV reads, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. 
When the Savior champion appears, it will be to suffer. Yes, he must experience the strike to his heel in order to deliver the blow that will crush the serpent's head. I don't know if you've ever done this. Have you ever come across a snake? And I, not the gardener snake stuff. I, like, big snake. If you'll ever come across, yes, we've got here. Yes, up there. If you ever come across a big snake, and you don't know if it's venomous or not venomous, you just see it's a big snake. Uh, uh, we've got them in Texas. I've come across quite a few, both venomous and non-venomous, and I still can't tell them apart completely. Uh, I have never, ever wanted to get close enough to stomp on its head. Ever. Because you know what would happen. The thing is going to get, it is going to, buy, in the midst of that fight, you'll probably come out on top, but you're going down with him. Uh, like that's the picture here. Uh, picture someone stamping their heel upon the head of a snake. In that very process, you're likely going to get bitten, struck, uh, uh, as in you're going to deal the death blow, uh, but in that uh, same act, uh, you're going to be, uh, you're, you're going to be struck too. And uh, if it's a venomous snake, if you don't know this, you need to know this. Even a bite to the heel is a death blow. <clears throat> so these are two death blows, uh, which means uh, the Savior, whoever this champion is, is going to die. They're going to die too, which raises the really good question. Okay, wait, they both lose, right? Like if, the sa if this champion dies... He loses. And I actually say no. Actually, uh, it's through his death that he wins. This is what we really want to point out here is after the fall, God does show up in judgment. It does not say in the cool of the day. It says in the spirit of the day, which everywhere else in the Bible means judgment. Uh, that's why Adam and Eve run this Genesis 3, 14, uh, 14, 15 stuff, this is actually bad news. But for who is bad news for the serpent? And what's bad news to him is good news to us. His curse in verses 14 and 15 is at the same time the promise of salvation for Adam and Eve and for sinners. Through a serpent trampling savior champion. I mean, think about this. Isn't it, isn't it wild? Isn't it interesting that the first promise of grace and salvation for sinners comes in the form of declaration of war against our enemy? So yeah, this is cryptic. Yeah, this is super, super brief. But it's here. It's here. The suffering and the glory of this Savior champion in his conflict with the devil. And the suffering, so strange to us, the suffering goes with the glory. It is through suffering that the glory will come. Who is this? Who, who is God talking about and promising to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15? Jesus. This is about Jesus who wins the victory over the devil through his suffering on the cross because on the cross in his suffering, Jesus pays the price for our rebellion. I mean, do you see 
that Genesis 3.15 is the first proclamation of the gospel. Okay, if you see that, do you see the incredible love and grace of God who shows up immediately after the fall to deal out some judgment and immediately he gives Adam and Eve the promise and hope of salvation. He does not show up and need a minute to cool down. He doesn't show up in the garden and say something that he's going to regret. He's got to take some time, come back later, explain to Adam, I lost my cool, I, you know, I, I'm, but I'm still upset with you. Okay, but I shouldn't have said what I said. He doesn't show up and say, you know what, I need a minute or two because I'm just so disappointed in you right now. I can't look at you. And, you know, go to your room. Uh, I'll come get you when I'm ready to talk to you. Uh, can you imagine God leaving Adam and Eve, like holding their breath of like what he's going to do with them? I think we can, because I don't know if you're like me. I've done that before uh, with those I've got to uh, lovingly discipline. But he doesn't. That's not what he does. And he's not, and we got to be really clear here. He is not saying, it's no big deal. Like, oh man, you screwed everything up. Um, you know, it's okay. Let's move past it let's never discuss this again. Like, this not what, he doesn't say that. He shows up in judgment. He is going to pour out his wrath on the devil and on all sin and on all those offspring of the devil who side with the devil. And I know, I know we don't like wrath. I, we don't like wrath, God's wrath stuff, but, but God's wrath is it's from his love. And it is, it's from his love. One commentator put it like this. He says, the wrath of the triune God is exactly the opposite of a character blip or a nasty side in, a nasty side in him. It is the proof of the sincerity of his love that he truly cares. His love is not mild-mannered or limp. It is livid, potent, and committed, and therein lies our hope. Through his wrath, the living God shows that he is truly loving and that he will destroy all devilry. It's a great British word. Through his wrath, the living God shows that he is truly loving and that he will destroy all devilry so that we might enjoy him in a purified world, the home of righteousness. This gospel of salvation, it proclaims God's love for, sin for sinners. It's manifested. You see it through the sacrificial death of Jesus where Jesus takes the wrath of God's judgment for us in our place. That's the striking on the heel. He has got to go down in order to bring us up. And we just heard this this last spring, 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Wait for his son from heaven, whom God raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So after the fall, so you got to put yourself in the mind of uh, Adam and Eve here. After the fall, when Adam and Eve are sent out into the world, if they had asked themselves, will God be with us? Like, how will God still be with us? This is the promise they would have run to. This is the promise they would have said to each other over and over and over and over again. This is the promise they would have passed down to their children and taught them of, hey, let me tell you about Eden. And let me tell you how we messed it all up. Oh my goodness, what are we going to do now, mom and dad? 
they would have said, another son is coming to do what we failed to do, and he is going to save us. It, it, it's, that, it's that great question, that great question that we ask, how is anyone saved before Jesus? Simple answer. The same way people are saved after Jesus. Through Jesus. Jesus is absolutely fully present and offered as Savior to Adam and Eve here in the garden after the fall. And yes, yes, Adam failed in his covenant with God. Adam failed in his work. Adam failed with the devil. But it was not possible. It was not possible that the Son of God would come and fail. It was so certain that Jesus would do what Adam failed to do and that he would also pay the penalty for Adam's failure and for ours. So certain that he would do his work and earn the blessings of the kingdom for his people that even before it happened in time and space, the blessing of his work and salvation, it is already being applied. It is already being dispensed here with Adam and Eve right after the fall. Uh, this also answers in part another great question of what about those around the world who have never heard of the gospel, who have never heard about Jesus? Like, how can God judge them? Let, you've got to hear me say this. There's a lot to say in response to that question. Here's part, just part. Here's part of a response to that very, very good question. Why do we rush why do we rush to put the blame on God for that? Just think about that. God never left his people in the dark about this salvation. He told them about it as soon as they were in need of it. And that message of salvation was to be passed down from generation to generation to generation as the only message of, uh, of salvation and hope. <laughs> you know, what about people who've never heard of it? Is that God's fault or is that our fault? As in like the fault of mankind. And the generations of mankind that came from Adam and Eve who rejected this message and refused to pass it down. Like why, why does that, what that legitimate problem should do is actually spur us on to tell more people about Jesus when they ask and when it comes up and when we have opportunity to say it. But I, I'm not saying... Please hear me. I'm not saying this to shame any of us. I'm pointing this up again. There's a lot to say to that question, but I am pointing up uh, the point uh, of the grace and the love of God right from the beginning of our rebellion against him. Adam and Eve, they had the gospel now, and they do hand it down. It's this gospel that we're going to see Job holding on to for dear life. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, a 20th century Welsh Protestant minister, uh, explains the gospel like this. He says, A king goes into battle against an invading army to defend his land. If this king defeats the army, he sends back messengers to the capital. They go back and with great joy say the enemy has been defeated and it's all been done. Let us all rejoice and live in peace, in the peace with, uh, with what has been achieved for us. Uh, but if the king does not defeat the invading army, 
and the enemy breaks through the lines, the king sends messengers to the capital city and says, put archers on the walls, raise the drawbridge, make provision, fight for your lives. And Martin Lloyd Jones, I'm sorry, Martin Lloyd Jones says that every other religion, every other religion, sends military advisors back to the people. If you want to achieve salvation, you have to fight for your life. Uh, every other religion is sending advice. Here are the rites. Here are the rituals. Here's the transformation of the consciousness. Here are the laws and the regulations. Here's how you fight for your lives. The gospel is an announcement of what has been done for us. This gospel is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. It was to Adam and Eve. We are going to see that it was to Job in order to see that it is also the power of salvation for us. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we simply, uh, but with all sincerity, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the gospel that you made known to your people um, in the midst of their first sin. Lord, that uh, your grace uh, is, not, is not unmerited favor. It is demerited favor. How beautiful is your grace? How awesome is your grace? And how awesome is your love and your commitment to us? We praise your Son, our Lord and Savior. He is our champion who has done for us what we cannot do, what we have failed to do. Praise his holy name. We pray in his name. Amen.